0: Welcome to Room 106. I'm Richard Garlick from Planning Magazine.
1: And I'm John Gagan, also from Planning Magazine.
0: Every fortnight, we enter Room 106, the repository that receives all new planning information and extract the key things you need to know.
1: So, coming up, the key news from the past fortnight and what it means for you.
0: Reports that the government will relax affordable housing and biodiversity demands placed on developers, among other deregulation. Will it happen?
1: The Conservative Party conference, what did we learn?
0: And what led an inspector to describe a council as the epitome of unreasonable behaviour over its refusal of a 700-home scheme? And in our deep-dive section, we'll be exploring how the government's proposal to replace what they call top-down Stalinist housing targets with local incentives for communities to accept new development might
1: work. By the end of the show... You should know enough to approach the office coffee machine with confidence.
0: So, time to get out the reading glasses. Ready to venture
1: in? I guess so. Well, here we are again in
0: room 106. So, John, what news stories have stood out in the past fortnight?
1: Well... My first item is a series of stories in the National Papers early last week about an announcement due on changes to the planning system to boost growth. According to an article in The Guardian last Monday, the levelling up secretary, Simon Clark had been planning to announce greater flexibility on affordable housing requirements, an easing of biodiversity net gain rules, and reducing housing delays caused by nutrient pollution according to the article, he was due to make an announcement this week as part of a series of measures aiming to reduce barriers for developers. The following day, more details of the government's intentions were revealed in articles in the Daily Telegraph and The Times. According to The Times, the government was looking at increasing the threshold at which developers were required to make affordable housing contributions, further permitted development changes and a relaxation of greenbelt rules for brownfield development. The measures would form part of the Prime Minister's supply-side reforms that were aiming to boost growth, and it's reportedly nicknamed Operation Rolling Thunder in Whitehall.
0: OK, and um, any more detail about what the government is said to be considering?
1: Well, in the government's growth plan at the end of last month, as our listeners know, there were lots of the proposals in there to deregulate planning rules in new investment zones. But these later proposals are about changing the system across England, According to the Guardian article, Clark wants to ease the impending requirement for all developers to include a biodiversity net gain of 10% in all their new projects. That's due to come to force in November next year and was introduced by the Environment Act. Clark is believed to also want to scrap the uh, so-called nutrient neutrality rules, uh, which is a reference to the nutrient neutrality advice issued by Natural Link to Local Authorities, in parts of england near protected sites and that's held up consent for tens of thousands of new homes across the country according to the guardian which which says it has seen the plans that the government is considering the guardian article further said that clark is pushing for developers in england to be given greater flexibility on affordable housing requirements in addition clark wants to allow more people to convert agricultural and commercial properties into homes currently some of these Kinds of conversions that are allowed under permitted development rights. The Guardian claims to have seen these plans that the government is considering. And the Times had more detail on the affordable housing proposals. It said that Clark wants to increase the threshold under which developers are exempt from having to build affordable homes from 10 houses to 40 or 50. This is something the government's previously consulted on in 2020, but then it rejected the plan last year. According to the Times, this was due to a backlash from charities and social housing providers, which warned of fewer affordable homes being built. But despite this, the article states that the government expects that this would happen. It would reduce the number of affordable homes built, but it would provide a boost to small and medium-sized builders. Potentially more radically, the Telegraph, said Clark, is, is considering allowing the construction of homes on brownfield sites in Greenbelt areas, which suggests a loosening of regulations around greenbelt development, but it's unclear how this would actually change current policy. The MPPF has, as our listeners know, strict rules about development on greenbelt. All new building on the greenbelt is considered inappropriate, but one of the exceptions to this is already the partial or complete redevelopment of previously developed land, aka brownfield sites, as long as it does not impact on greenbelt openness or cause it substantial harm. And echoing claims in The Guardian, The Times also said Clark might expand permitted development rights so people can build extensions or add extra floors to their properties without need to submit a full planning application, as well as making it easier to convert commercial and agricultural properties into homes.
0: Yeah, the PD rights ones are quite confusing though, aren't they? Because a, a lot of what was suggested in the reports were sort of talking about allowing permitted development into in sort of areas of development where permitted development rights already apply. So it's, it's quite confusing. So um, when are we likely to hear more about this? When when are these likely to be sort of fleshed out and when are we likely to have, rather than sort of leaked to newspapers, something from the government that actually sets out what it wants to do?
1: Well, it's not entirely clear. According to the Guardian, the announcements were due to be made this Wednesday. And the Times and the Telegraph suggested they were due to be proposed even quicker within a matter of days, so by the end of last week. But then on Wednesday, there was a further report in the Times saying that The Prime Minister's pro-growth plans, which would have included these planning changes, had been stymied by disagreements within the Cabinet. And it said that the planning reforms, which were scheduled for publication next week, i.e. this week, had been pushed back until next month after the fiscal statement, which is due on 23rd of November.
0: Okay, Given what's going on at the moment and the complete turmoil and, uh, and crisis which the government is in, how likely do you think any of this is to actually come to pass?
1: Well, given how fast government policy is changing since the mini budget and how much the Prime Minister's authority has been undermined in the past week, there has to be a, a big question mark over one of these, whether any of these proposals, particularly the more radical ones, would ever see the light of day. Some of these would be very controversial. You'd imagine that any moves to relax biodiversity net gain rules and affordable housing requirements would generate lots of opposition given the outrage we've already seen in the last few weeks from environmental groups about the investment zone proposals and those deregulatory plans, which would just occur in the specific areas where investment zones would be designated. I mean, these latest proposals would be across the board. And obviously, any moves to ease Greenbelt development would provoke even more reaction, particularly among Tory backbench MPs. Also, you get the sense these are ideas that floating around and being tested in the national media rather than concrete, well thought through proposals that are ready for publication.
0: So essentially, potentially interesting, but um, uh, don't yet bank on any of these things happening. Would that, would that be the sort of overall verdict?
1: I think so. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So what's your next story, John? My second item is the Conservative Party Conference, which took place at the start of the month.
0: Already seems a long time ago.
1: It does. Yes. A lot's happened since then. I mean, any party conference by the, the governing party will typically generate lots of coverage from us and lots of interest from our readers. We had no firm policy announcements, but there were some significant messages from the Prime Minister and the Housing Ministerial team on planning and housing delivery, as well as some headline-grabbing comments from the fringe events.
0: OK, so what were the key things that the um, the ministerial team said?
1: Well, the new Housing Minister, Lee Rowley, appeared at quite a few fringe events, Probably the most important comments he made was him saying that the Prime Minister is intending to scrap the 300,000 homes a year national target. He told the trade magazine Inside Housing that Liz Truss has been clear that she wants to abolish top-down housing targets and the government is in the process of working through the policy changes. So we followed this up with the levelling up Department, who confirmed to us that the comments were accurate and referred to the government's national housing target of 300,000 homes a year, which formed part of their 2019 election manifesto. Rowley also confirmed the levelling up and regeneration bill has not been scrapped. He said it's expected to continue its progress through Parliament, despite speculation in the sector uh, about its future, given the Chancellor's announcement in the mini-budget of a new planning infrastructure bill. The levelling up bill was drawn up under the previous Housing Secretary, Michael Gove, and there's a raft of changes to the planning system in there. The new Secretary of State, Simon Clark, also gave a conference speech. He said, accelerating development of brownfield sites is of the utmost importance, as is building beautifully. He said, we want to grow organic communities, not impose cardboard boxes across our shires. As with investment zones, local consent will sit at the heart of our plans. And he said that more details in these plans to increase housing delivery will be fleshed out in the coming weeks. Although this was before the um, just before the revelations in last week's newspapers. So perhaps those housing delivery plans have been pushed back now until after the um, November fiscal statement.
0: OK, what about the Prime Minister? What, what, what does she have to say about uh, planning and housing delivery?
1: Well, our listeners will remember that she said a lot about planning and housing delivery in her leadership campaign. In her conference speech, she didn't say too much about planning but she did say that houses must be built where they are wanted which is echoing Clark's comments that local consent for new homes will be a key consideration and suggesting that currently it isn't as important as it should be. She also reiterated her commitment to investment zones which will have deregulated planning rules and she said they would help the government level up across the country.
0: Okay, and uh, away from the cabinet and ministers, was was there anything else that was um, worth noting at the um, the conference?
1: Well, as usual at conference, you often get some eyebrow raising comments at the fringe events, and we certainly had some comments of that nature from a former number ten Downing Street advisor on planning and housing, Alex Morton, who is no stranger to listeners, given that he used to have a, a planning column. He said that. The housing department is far too captured by planners, which were his, his words, suggesting that they wield far too much influence. He also called for the scrapping of most planning rules from local plans. He said local plans should be massively streamlined and have a 10 year rather than a 20 year lifespan. I think our audience would be surprised to hear that some people think planners wield too much influence over the department and suspect that most think precisely the opposite.
0: I suspect actually planners in, in the department would be surprised to hear that. And I think Steve Quartermain would have been, um, uh, when we spoke to him about his, his experiences as, as chief planner, I don't think he felt that he and his professional colleagues had the department in a, uh, in a sort of vice-like grip. And uh, actually, I think he felt that special advisors were, uh, were very powerful, special advisors like, like Alex Morton.
1: Yes, that, that's interesting. We also had the former levelling up secretary, Michael Gove, saying that resistance to development is often fuelled by planning inspectors overriding local decision making. He said there were perfectly rational reasons for people to resist new development, but the current planning system doesn't seem to take account of democratic principles. So um, this issue of overriding local consent is obviously something that's continued. This kind of argument is one that Liz Truss has made recently.
0: OK, well, thanks very much. And what about your third story? You're moving away from uh, from national politics for the, for the third story, I think.
1: Yes, that's right. My final news item concerns an appeal decision in which a planning inspector branded a council the epitome of unreasonable behaviour over its refusal of a 700-home scheme. In this case, the inspector both allowed the appeal and awarded full costs against the council, which means the authority has to pay the developers' costs for lodging and fighting the appeal after he concluded that the local authority had demonstrated unreasonable behaviour.
0: OK, so tell us about how this all came to pass. I mean, why initially did members refuse the application?
1: So originally, wealdon District Council in East Sussex refused this application for the new homes, which was on an allocated greenfield site on the edge of a village. Alongside the homes, the application proposed employment floor space, a medical centre, school, other facilities... And it was refused last year by members of the planning committee on highways and transport issues. Uh, They also had concerns about the site's location and the effects of the development on drainage. Officers had recommended the application for consent, which is a key issue. So if members are going to go against the advice of officers, they need very good reasons to do so, usually. And the site was allocated in the development plan, which is another difficult thing to defend at at appeal. Okay.
0: Okay. And w- w- were those the main reasons why the appeal was allowed, or were there were there other factors?
1: Yes, I mean the, the site being allocated for development was a key reason for the appeal being allowed. The council actually withdrew from defending the appeal in August, alongside a separate application for a 200 home scheme, after being advised by legal experts that some of its grounds for refusal were baseless and they could not defend the indefensible. So for the 700 Home Appeal, the inspector had pointed out about the, the, the fact the development was allocated as a strategic development area in the council's core strategy from 2013. And he said that it was important that the development, which is critical to the delivery of the core strategy, was not delayed. Another important issue was the fact the council couldn't show a five-year housing land supply. He said the council's supply was under four years and it had a poor record of housing delivery. He said the proposal would deliver a number of benefits, including market affordable homes, economic benefits through job creation, and biodiversity net gain. And together, all these benefits attracted substantial weight.
0: So that was his reasons for allowing the appeal. But he then made an additional decision to award costs against the council. So what, what was the reasoning there?
1: Yes. Yeah, so when a developer applies for a cost award and they win an appeal, it doesn't always mean that they'll necessarily get the cost award as well but in in this case they did so in in considering whether to award the costs the inspector michael boniface said the authority's conduct in this case is the epitome of unreasonable behavior and his words are pretty damning he said it has delayed development which clearly should have been permitted having regard to its accordance with the development plan and all other material considerations the council has failed to produce evidence to substantiate each reason for refusal on appeal instead making vague, generalised or inaccurate assertions about the proposal's impact, unsupported by any objective analysis. And he concluded that unreasonable behaviour resulting in unnecessary or wasted expense has been demonstrated and a full award of cost is justified. So pretty harsh words. In the other appeal for the 200 home application, which I mentioned earlier, that was also allowed. And similarly, the inspector there, a different inspector, also awarded costs against the council. And he had strong words as well. He said he had no hesitation in concluding that the council's behaviour was unreasonable.
0: Has the council said anything in response to these comments from the inspector?
1: Yes, there was a comment from the council's leader, who's also the portfolio holder for planning. And she said, as councillors, we listened to the residents' views and voted with our hearts. We believed it was the right thing to do to turn down the applications and maintained our positions on both until we reached the end of the democratic process and were told our defence of both appeals was indefensible. We tried, but unfortunately we failed. She said they were disappointed with the decisions, but as they reflected on the detail, they understood they were consistent with government policy. But she went on to say this would only serve to redouble their efforts to lobby the government, to change national policy, to increase investment in infrastructure, and most importantly, reduce housing targets for our beautiful districts.
0: It's an interesting response, isn't it? It's a sort of non-apology apology, isn't it? And um, clearly, the impact of what they've done they, has just been to incur costs and delay development, which is, is now going to go ahead anyway. It looks like it's just been done to try and show their electorate that their hands aren't on this decision.
1: Yes. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think when you're refusing a, a scheme that Has been allocated in your your own development plan you know you're going to have to find really good reasons for refusal and and saying you you voted with your hearts is um probably not going to stand up to an inspector's scrutiny
0: no but maybe they know better than than we do what will go down well with their local electorate but it's um if other councils act in the same way you know the become even harder for people to get permission for planned housing yeah Okay. Well, many thanks, John. Uh, of course, more details of all these stories can be found on planningresource.co.uk. And uh, see you later to talk about your story of the week, which has attracted the most interest from our readers. There isn't a sort of major national news story. But for now, I'm going to have to leave you for a bit to do this week's deep dive, in which we'll be exploring more of the implications of the government's proposal to get rid of so-called top-down housing targets. Bye for now. So now I need to find my way back to the part of Room 106 where the emerging government planning policies are incubated. Rather than the reams of documents that characterise other parts of Room 106, this area looks more like the contents of a shredder, snippets of conference speeches newspaper columns and tweets lying all over the floor. As I enter, I can see someone painstakingly trying to glue them together into a coherent whole. Ah, it's planning special correspondent, Joey Gardner. Hi, Joey.
2: Good afternoon, Richard.
0: So, Joey, you've been looking at some of the things the government has been saying about the abolition of top-down housing targets and what they're going to do to replace them. Just remind us, first of all, about what the government has said on this topic
2: well our new government as it still is although although we all feel i think probably st- quite considerably older than we were at the point at which um, our prime minister came to power and our prime minister uh, came to power promising to abolish top down stalinist housing targets that was uh, that was what liz truss said in her leadership campaign over the summer now this policy so far hasn't been abandoned as the government has continued. Uh, it's been repeated both by her, her housing secretary and the housing minister. So Simon Clark, the uh, levelling up and housing secretary, has repeated this promise, as has Lee Rowley. He's also talked about, because there is to a planning statement or a planning reform paper, which was part of the growth plan, which has now obviously in terms of its tax proposals been heavily rode back on, but so far not its policy proposals. In terms of that growth plan, there was also promised planning reform. Simon Clark has said that the idea is, as well as ending these top-down Stalinist housing targets, we're going to be seeing measures which are going to be pro-house building, are going to be pro-growth and are, in his, his words, uh, in, in, an in interviews that he's given, going to see local people incentivized to accept more development in their area, local people in councils.
0: Okay so that's a key part of his thinking is that you can um maybe get the housing we need by offering the right kind of incentives uh, locally to um uh, to persuade people to get on board
2: certainly and and this follows thinking that Simon Clark has had for a number of years this isn't a new issue for him he's actually been talking about this for a while in in different areas um as far back as 2018 he w- he was talking about this issue in the context of wind farms, because Simon Simon Clark is a pro-wind farm MP. He's quite a, a green MP, and he was talking about a planning system that en- enabled, in his words, he, he, he wrote a paper that enabled communities to benefit directly from the approval of planning proposals for, for wind farms. And this is very similar to the kinds of ideas, or it appears to be very similar to the kinds of ideas that he's talking about here or at least contemplating in a wider sense both in the planning system more more generally but specifically we think with with housing so that could be a system that goes beyond section 106 whereby planning contributions can only relate to things which mitigate the specific impacts of a development to um, contributions that go beyond just mitigating impacts of development and actually pay more broadly for community benefits.
0: Okay, interesting. So before we go further into that, first of all, what do they mean when they talk about this phrase, Stalinist housing targets and getting rid of them? What do you understand they mean by that? Are they just talking about the manifesto pledge for 300,000 homes a year in England? Or are they also talking about the the housing need figures that are produced by the government's standard method of of assessing housing need, which isn't exactly a target but which is a consideration that local authorities have to factor in when they bring forward their local plans saying how much housing is going to be provided for in their areas
2: i mean in specific terms it's absolutely not clear, and the government so far has avoided being directly specific about it. I think for obvious reasons, given that the 300,000 target is a manifesto pledge, the consensus from, from commentators seems to be that the local housing need figure generated by the standard method in the way that it currently is generated by the standard method created in Whitehall is is bound to be changed because I think that's what councils or those that have high housing need numbers under that that method most resent and and causes the most difficulty politically for the government. And that is almost seen as almost certain to go. Politically, obviously, it's more complicated for the government to get rid of the 300,000 homes a year target. And so therefore, commentators are divided as to whether that will actually go or not. One suggestion is that the government will not formally abandon it, will not make a definitive statement that it's walking away from it, but actually, in practice, the idea of policy flowing from the idea of a central target uh, to meet 300,000 homes a year and that the government directing its efforts towards that will essentially have ended and be seen to have ended, and the government will stop talking about it as an ambition.
0: Yeah, well, one of the um, uh, slight absurdities of having both the 300,000 target and the standard method is that they did have to keep tweaking the standard method in ways that ensured that the numbers it produced added up to 300,000, which which, um, I think has has undermined the the, the standard method, um, uh, very unfortunately. If they do get rid of the standard method, are they likely to get rid of a sort of some kind of local housing target entirely?
2: I think that the idea of that seems very difficult for the government, but there are many ways in which you could create local housing targets, and the most obvious would be to return to the system that existed prior to the introduction of the standard method. but the obvious point to counter that is that the standard was it, method was it, itself was introduced to address a very, very clear problem that was seen to arise from that system, which was of local authorities calculating objectively assessed need in their local areas. And the clear problem was that local authorities and plan inspectors were, were spending countless hours in plan inquiries debating back and forth with expensive lawyers and, and QCs questions of the number of homes to be delivered in, in areas. And it was, it was taking up considerable time and delaying plans by um, a considerable amount. And I don't think anyone really feels that that is a desirable place to return to.
0: Okay, so if they are going to get rid of the current system, Beyond the sort of incentives that you've talked about earlier that um, Simon Clark is interested in, what else might they look at?
2: Well, they've also talked a lot in, in the growth plan, which, as I say, as of today, it's still current policy about investment zones and how they want to use that to clearly back economic growth, part of which is based on housing supply. One of the ideas that, that appears to be going around in, in policy circles at the moment is how you might enable that investment zone growth to to happen and expand quickly in the current political environment without having to resort to new legislation which is going to result in a lengthy parliamentary process. So what existing tools are there uh, legal tools within the within the planning law framework that might give you the freedoms to be able to set up that somewhat deregulated framework or somewhat freer planning framework uh, as has been envisaged in the investment zones. And so people are looking hard at what powers there might be under both local development orders, which are relatively well known if not that well. Use, but also much, much lesser known ideas that that are in or laws that are in the planning system, things like simplified planning zones and planning freedom schemes, both of which exist under existing laws, but, but have, have really rarely, if, if ever, been used, but potentially give quite wide ranging powers. The other things that people are talking about are the kinds of ideas that have been talked about for a while by the likes of Create Streets, Policy Exchange, other think tanks, which are about, I guess, uh, a catch-all would be a kind of urban intensification of existing areas. So those policies, like, I suppose, Street Votes is the best known of them, which are about how you use a political process and a planning process to enable existing built-up areas to decide to redevelop themselves much more quickly and much more intensively than they otherwise would. But there, there are other variations which are, you know, people allowing themselves to vote to allow, uh, you know, give a, a local permitted development to mansard roof extensions, for example. You know, there are lots of versions of this and all of these could potentially be part of a mix which enables, which is a, a kind of a growth positive planning reform.
0: Okay, so it's it's about sort of um, alongside incentives, having a planning environment which is um, either lighter touch or more of a kind of zoning system in some ways, um, where where decisions are made up front and uh, to create a kind of smoother uh, application process, and that, and that would sort of complement the um, the incentives. That's the theory. What do commentators think about the likely effectiveness of these sort of changes in terms of boosting housing delivery?
2: I think, overall, there is a certain degree of enthusiasm about the use of incentives. One of the commentators in the piece that I wrote this week says that reforming Section 106 to enable it to go beyond just measures which mitigate the impact of existing developments could actually be a magic bullet. That was his phrase for securing community support for development. So people do see the positive potential for measures like that but that same commentator also cautioned but hang on you know people have tried to make that reform for years and years and years and they've failed to do it because it's a very very complicated thing to do and i think that goes to the flip side of this which is that overall there is huge skepticism that there is anything that the government is liable to bring forward both in terms of incentives or in terms of investment zones which will be of anything close to the scale that will be enough to offset the likely negative impact on planning permissions and the opportunity to develop from scrapping housing targets which certainly The developer community and those planners that work in the developer community are very, very nervous about Litchfields, for example, uh, this week. One of of their senior planners this week wrote an article suggesting that delivery could drop by as much as 35% in the year following the scrapping of housing targets, um, all else being equal. If the system wasn't replaced by uh, another one, which was an aggressively pro-growth system.
0: Well, that's, uh, that's interesting to hear. And um, I have to say, it um, slightly um, it, it does coincide with my feelings about it. I, I sort of feel that the, in light of some of the changes to the household projections in, in, in recent years, it would be perfectly logical for the government to say, well, actually, the 300,000 target, we're going to reduce that a bit, or we're not going to stick to a target that we drew up when the data looked different. But I must say, I think it's mad for them to get rid of a um, painstakingly designed method of assessing need it doesn't mean it can't be fine-tuned, but to get rid of a a sort of painstakingly designed method of assessing need which was put in place to tackle a problem of authorities spending years wrangling over housing need figures with developers and and, and consultants, I think you would be mad to dismantle it entirely and, and replace it with something drawn up in haste.
2: Indeed. I mean, I think probably what people have not necessarily appreciated is that this wasn't necessarily just a political move or a a tactical move from Liz Truss. You know, the the feeling I have speaking to people about her decision to abolish top-down planning targets is that, you know, as as a free marketeer, she really does believe that a free market doesn't operate successfully with targets driven by the state from the centre so that policy wasn't a difficult one for her to reach. It was one that I think she knew was going to be popular with her um, Conservative Party electors in her summer leadership campaign but it was also one that as a liberal supporter of the free market she believed actually the state shouldn't be telling people what to do and so I think from that point of view that's where she's coming from and she thinks that there really should be a market solution for this problem but i i think the issue that she's likely to come up against is that this is a system that doesn't work you know has all sorts of con- wider constraints on it doesn't work as a as a wholly unconstrained free market and if you just get rid of one element the top down target you're, you i think you you're just bound to get a reduction in supply, that seems to be the view from from almost everyone I speak to.
0: Yeah, absolutely. If you want it to operate as a free market, you have to get rid of the um, the constraints like green belt, which are you know absolutely precious to to most of her supporters. Exactly. Okay, Joey, and just just finally, uh, how close do you think the government is to being able to bring this together into some kind of coherent? package which they can put out on paper, you know, consult on or set out as a a coherent set of policy proposals?
2: Well, I I think it's got to be quite far off, hasn't it? I mean, we've seen just in the last few days how chaotic the government is at this point. I mean, just as recently as a week ago, we were being briefed that this planning statement would be on October the 19th. That's now been put off until at least after the medium-term fiscal plan on October the 31st. But in real terms, given what's happened in the last few days with Jeremy Hunt scrapping virtually all of the tax proposals in the mini-budget and that were contained in the growth plan, I'm not sure we can really take anything for granted in the growth plan at this at this point. And in a broader sense, it seems if Liz Truss is still in power, in the weeks and months ahead, and trying to push pro-growth planning reforms through her party. As one of the commentators said to me in in my piece this week, if she can't get tax cuts supported through her Conservative party and voted through, how is she likely to get complicated, difficult and unpopular pro-growth planning reforms through? It seems a very tough ask.
0: Okay, Joey. Well, thank you very much for that. I'm going to leave you here looking for further tidbits of uh, of information about all this and um, look forward to seeing you again in Room 106 in the not-too-distant future, I hope.
2: Thanks very much, Richard. I'll get on with it.
0: Okay, now I need to find John so we can talk about his uh, reader's choice of the week, the story that's caught the eye of our readers without necessarily being a national headline.
1: John. Hello, Richard. So what's the reader's choice this week? Well, one of our top five most read stories of the past fortnight is about a council granting planning permission in error to its deputy leader. Even though it appears to be a quirky story, it actually touches on the very serious issue of planning staff shortages which were blamed for the error. So here we have a planning officer at Arran District Council in West Sussex granting its Conservative deputy leader and her husband permission to add windows to the back of their home last year. The problem was that under the council's rules, any application from members should be referred to the planning committee for consideration, which in this case had not happened. According to A report for a recent planning committee meeting, the planning officer had been unaware that the site owner was the council deputy leader. The application was redetermined then by the committee, which granted consent. And what's notable here beyond the council making a mistake and the council deputy leader being the applicant was the issue of staff shortages that were blamed. The council's group head of planning actually told the meeting... We deal with 2,000 plus applications a year. We don't have the resources or knowledge to go through every single application to ensure that agents have filled it incorrectly, and we are now having to deal with the consequences. So we've had lots of coverage in recent years of the problems facing council planning teams due to a lack of resources. And another one we featured in the past fortnight that was in the top 10 most read stories was about Leeds City Council's chief planning officer saying it lacked the money to carry out all its planning functions. And you also said the government's ongoing planning reforms presented a resourcing challenge.
0: Okay, so yeah, very embarrassing for the uh, for the councilman in question and the deputy leader in question. As you say, it does increasingly seem to be that um, the resourcing issue is being pointed to when, um, when when mistakes are being made. Okay, well, thanks very much, John. I think our work is done. Let's get out before there are any more announcements or decisions. Great, that's another fortnight summarised.
1: Yes, we'll be back in two weeks to give you another update on the key things happening in the sector.
0: In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts and look out for our Planning for Housing conference in London on the 17th of November. And to get a daily bulletin of planning news, plus weekly analysis and specialist bulletins, subscribe at planningresource.co.uk. Our thanks to producers Aidan Lyons and Daisy Chaku from Rethink, and thanks for listening.
1: Goodbye.